find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Hey there, my name is Bree. And I'm Suze. We're the hosts of Crime and Spirits, a true crime and cocktail podcast. Do you love spooky stories and all things true crime? How about themed cocktails? Do you love those too? Well, that's perfect, because so do we. Yeah, in fact, we love them so much, we made an entire podcast all about it. Every week, we bring you a new episode that covers a different case or topic of interest. But first, we'll need drinks. Don't you worry, we've got you covered there. Every week, we'll teach you how to make a handcrafted cocktail that ties into the theme or topic in some way. So you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much every other platform available. New episodes roll out every Sunday. So buckle up and sip tight. We can't wait to talk some true crime with you. Bye. Everybody, welcome back to another Sunday edition of my favorite thing to do in my free time. This is my second self and I. I am your host, Matt. I am also the co-host, Alex. He is one of the many voices in my head, and he chimes in from time to time just to do some co-hosty type stuff. Hey guys, that's me. I am excited for this month and also for today's episode. We are doing a month's worth of non-American-based weird crimes, most likely some murders. Today is one for sure. And this time, I'm going to call it um, Around the World in 30 Days. Sure, that sounds to the point enough. Well, I think you nailed it. Yeah, I'm glad we thought of it. So what you got today? Today, we're going to the land down under. Women glow and men plunder. Sorry. We're going to talk about the backpacker murders today. I'm actually not sorry for that minute work reference. I actually found out about this story from a customer at work a few weeks ago. So thank you, sir, if you happen to be listening. I remembered. There was a movie sort of kind of made about these murders called Wolf Creek. It was loosely based on true events which closely resembled the real-life backpacker murders, but I didn't have time to watch it as I hardly ever do have time to watch movies. I'm so behind on movies. So I don't know how it stacks up to the real story, which this, by the way, is going to be one of the more brutal and depraved episodes we've talked about in a while. I mean, yeah, Boonhelm kind of ate people just because he felt like it. He was pretty gross, but we didn't have nearly as much detail on him as we have for this one. Also, this guy has a way higher body count. Way? Dude, way higher. Confirmed to be seven, but after his arrest, there turned out to be a lot more that he could possibly and very likely be responsible for. Before we proceed with today's story, though, I would like to point out to any potential new listeners, Hi, I'm Crazy. And if you don't know what to expect here, this is a comedy show, but it's also about true crime, so... This is absolutely a true story, and this stuff actually happened, but I'm gonna get kind of creative in the storytelling department to make the stuff around the murders as funny as I can, because... Honestly, sometimes I've been doing this reading crime stuff for over a year now, mostly for fun, and sometimes it can be hard to digest, so you need a little bit of humor peppered in here and there to make it easier. And hopefully that's the role I'll fill today with a little bit of help from Alex over there. I'm kind of loud. I try to use the echoes in here to my advantage. I swear a lot. I'm Sometimes it might seem like I'm rambling, but trust me, 
there's a point to it. It's going to come back around to a cohesive story, and we're all going to have a good time today. Sound like fun? All right, cool. Honk your horn two times if that sounds like fun. Make the person in front of you reflect on their driving for a few seconds. Did I do something wrong a minute ago? Unless you live in Texas, don't do that. That shit will get you shot down here. Okay, with that out of the way, we are set up enough for me to put on my tour guide slash narrator hat and take you all on a hopefully hilarious, definitely dangerous, and deadly hike through the outback. Okay, we're not actually going anywhere near the outback, but we are going to go on a little hike through the woods. If you follow the Hume Highway in a southwesterly direction for about an hour and a half, you'll reach a towering maze of trees in abundant nature. Through the winding footpaths and walking trails, underneath the canopy of thousands and thousands of tall trees full of bugs and birds, hidden beside the bushes and underbrush lie a startling number of secrets that still gnaw on the heels of those who dare to tread. Hitchhiking had become an all-too-popular form of travel for many a young backpacker among the 80s and 90s in the Great Down Under. It was cheaper, you got to meet interesting people, you could expose yourself to new ideas and places, traveling cross-country on a pocket full of change and coming out the other side with a brand new perspective and worldview. But if it sounds too good to be true, then it has to have a downside somewhere. There has to be a catch to it, right? The catch should be obvious to those blessed with the gift of common sense, there's always an inherent danger in accepting a ride from a stranger, especially if you aren't from the area, as we'll see with many of the people in this story today. See, all the way back in December of 1989, just a few short months after your beloved narrator and co-host were born, a young couple were making their way from Sydney to something called CONFEST. This is essentially just a gigantic civic center with like eight different conventions going on at the same time. CONFEST! There's an anime con, a book con, a comic con, a ghost con, a video game con, a monster con, a pirate con, and a car con, all taking up about 20 square miles of outdoor nerd heaven. Okay, so that part isn't exactly true. I made up all of that based on just the name before I read into it, but I got pretty damn close. Check this out. It's an outdoor campground festival that can support around 7,000 visitors, which is a shitload of people. And those same shitloads of people are going to be enjoying all kinds of activities, such as workshops for yoga, meditation, permaculture, arts, music, and don't you dare forget sexuality. And also don't you dare forget all the different villages that you can attend to while you're at ConFest. Villages also have food and shops that are related to the name of the village, so... You can check out some of those villages like Acrotown, Arts, Permaculture, Tranquility, Causeway, Aboriginal, and Wimba Wimba. I don't know what that is. Consent, Veg Out, Drumming, Polly, Nudies, Family, Gypsy, Rainbow, Uncertainty, Open Stage, Marketplace, and Wellness, just to name a few of the many villages at CONFEST. This place sounds like it would be a fun thing to do. Like, I fucking love inclusive communal art shit like this. That would be a blast. Well, unfortunately, this lovely young couple we're talking about today, having been on their way to do probably a lot of those things, I would have a hard time picking just one of those to do, but on the way there, they ran into a little bit of trouble. Deborah Everest and James Gibson caught a ride from a man that calls himself Bill. Bill is a problem, though. Bill doesn't want to go to Confest. He's not into the artsy stuff. He's into much worse stuff. Bill likes to hurt people and he's unfortunately pretty good at it. How does he hurt people? Well, like a lot of serial killers, it starts off subtly. He would approach unsuspecting travelers in his four-wheel drive truck and offer them a ride to wherever they were going. Boy, where you headed, mate? 
Yeah, I'm just on my way down to Belangla for a bit of orienteering. Oh yeah, me too. Hop in, I'll give you a ride. Once inside, he'd start driving, but it wasn't often to the traveler's intended destination. Tensions would rise and the situation would turn violent very quickly once he was well out of eyesight of other passing motorists. They'd arrive at the edge of the woods, and at gunpoint, Bill walked them deeper and deeper until there was nothing around but the trees and the wind. James Gibson was stabbed eight times in the back and chest, puncturing his heart and lungs, and a very large knife had severed the upper portion of his spine. Think about that for a second. I have a hard time getting through a chicken back with one chop. Maybe I just need better knives, but how much force would, like, that is so much violent and cut through his spine. Ugh. Anyway. And poor Deborah Everest had it at least as bad, with her skull being fractured in two places, her jaw was broken, and she had some sort of knife marks all over her forehead, which to me implies some level of torture, and she was also stabbed through the back, likely also through the heart and lungs. His objective now complete, Bill continues with the disrespect by half-acidly burying the bodies under some twigs and leaves as he calmly walks away through the belonglow like nothing ever happened. Wait, why did he use a knife to kill them if he had a gun? We'll get into that in a little bit. I think he's more concerned with the amount of damage done rather than how it's achieved. For example, the next man we need to introduce had a slightly different experience with Mr. Bill. Not only does he have my favorite name of anyone I've talked about so far, but he's the only person to have accepted a ride from Bill and survived. Paul Onions would be the eventual hero of our story, bringing to light everything the police needed to know to finally track down and kill Bill! Okay, maybe not kill, but they definitely wanted to find him. His name is Onions? Yes! Paul is a British man who had spent some time in the Royal Navy where he developed an insatiable hunger for travel. He'd been hitchhiking from Liverpool Station towards Mildura and was picked up by a man whose only name given was, you guessed it, Bill, near the town of Kasula. By the way, any Australian listeners, I really hope I'm pronouncing these places correctly, I, and I hope I'm getting the geography correct too. I have like no frame of reference for literally anything going on down there. They just got done with Australian winter, actually. Oh, that's nice. We've been melting over here. Wait, how did you know that and I didn't? Google dog, use that shit. Alright, that's fair enough. So Bill pulled over about one kilometer from the Belonglo State Forest near a town called Mittagong, which is in the southern highlands of New South Wales in a place that I'm definitely not going to pronounce correctly. Sorry, Aussie friends. Winch Caribbeshire, which is near Bowral, Barama, Mossvale, Yarnbool, and Colovale. I hope I got some of those close, at least. Sorry for the brief sidetrack there. I just love the names. They're they're so different from everything over here. It's just so fascinating to say them out loud. You should try it. Let's get back to Mr. Bill, though, and what he's doing, but um, I gotta level with you guys. Spoiler alert, it's not good. It's also probably why he didn't give his name as anything more than Bill, because he didn't want anyone to know that he's about to try to chop up some onions. Dude, I'm not sorry. As the two drove down the road, Bill began saying things that were just really unsettling. Paul already had reservations about the ride, but the ever-increasing intensity of the crazy shit Bill was rambling on about really made him start to worry. And then sure enough, just like with Deborah and James, once they're far enough out of sight, Bill pulls over and stops the car. Bill pulls over south of Mittagong, whips out some rope and a gun, just like with the other two, orders onions out of the produce bag, I mean truck, at gunpoint, and to go take a hike in the woods with him. Paul isn't ready to be a main course yet, though, so he quickly runs away and tries to flag down a passing motorist. All the while, Bill is chasing him down the highway, 
brandishing his gun in broad-ass daylight while he shoots at Paul, who's trying to flag down one of the passing cars. He's actively standing in the middle of a busy highway, getting in the way of cars, trying to get somebody to just please stop and help him, when finally, secondary hero of the story, Joanne Barry, comes to a screeching halt in order not to hit Mr. Onions, and he finally has his escape. <sighs> Had she not stopped, Mr. Onions might very well have ended up as a garnish for some finely diced Texas chili. First of all, Bill is a wuss for that shoot at a man as he's running away. Second, Paul is totally fine. There's still plenty of onions to go around for everybody, and he's still in one piece, too, you know? Very minimal onion chopping going on in the story today. He didn't even get hit by one of those stray bullets, I don't think. So my new favorite duo, Barry and Onions, <laughs> go down to Bowerl to file a police report on what just happened. However, the police don't give it much attention for some reason, and the file sits in a drawer for a couple more years before anything is done about it. In the meantime, Paul's going back home to England to recover with his lovely supporting girlfriend, and Bill is going to take a little bit of a break. That was way too close a call with Onions back there. I've had a few close calls with Onions myself. I mean, sometimes they make their way to my enchiladas at restaurants and catches me off guard every time. Cook them down a little first if they're inside the filling. I don't want a surprise crunch. So the Onion event went down in January of 1990, but Bill wouldn't strike again until about a year later in 1991. Simone Schmidl was making her way from Melbourne to Sydney. That's a long way to hitchhike. For my American friends, it's a little bit under a nine-hour drive, so almost all the way across Texas if you're going from east to west on I-10. You'd still have about three hours of driving, give or take, before you left the state because Texas is ridiculous. Stry is way bigger, though. Way? Dude, way bigger. You can fit so many Texases in that bad boy. You can fit, like, 11 Texases in that place. Somewhere along the highway, Simone must have met Bill, and she, like the first two, would meet an excessively violent end. Her wounds included eight stab wounds, which were deep enough to puncture her heart and lungs, all over her back and chest, and her spine was severed in two places. Bill, what the fuck, man? They also found some clothes that didn't belong to her, but that we'll come back to a little bit later. Later on that same year, though, Bill's getting cocky to be doing this again within a single calendar year. Maybe that's a sign he's getting sloppy? He meets another young couple backpacking their way across the sunburnt country. Australia's like my head if I don't wear a hat outside, wide, shiny, and red. Bill's next pair of unfortunate nomadic victims were Gabor Nugerbauer and Anya Khabshid in April of 1992. On their way to Mildura from King's Cross Hostel, they also met Bill along the way and found themselves in, I think, the worst shape of everybody. How do you do something worse than severing a spine in two places? Well, really worse is kind of subjective when you're talking about, you know, violent, sadistic murder, I suppose, but this one's just kind of stickier, I guess might be a better way to put it. Nugerbauer had been shot in the head six times with a 22 caliber, which is already excessive, and Anya had been completely decapitated. He took her head all the way off and then must have fucked off with it somewhere because they never found the skull. Oh yeah, and those clothes they found at Simone's crime scene belonged to Anya, which means they probably walked by her, quote, grave on the way to their own murder, which... Oh, Jesus, yeah. See what you mean about sticky. Yeah, it just kind of, like, clings to you if you think about it too much. Like, being walked through the woods by a stranger is scary enough, and then if you see a body lying in the woods, it just... Ugh. And then also knowing what happened to those poor kids, too. It's just a big, sticky mess. 
And finally, the last of the for sure known victims, Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters, they followed the same path as Habshid and Neugerbauer toward Mildura from King's Cross and happened to cross Bill. Walters had been stabbed 15 times all over her back and chest. That is a lot of stabs. It says she would have also been paralyzed by this attack, so I think that also implies some spinal severing might have been going on. And Clark had been shot 10 times in the head, leading police to believe she'd been used as target practice. This dickhead is excessive, mate. Sorry, by the way, if my Aussie slang's not totally accurate. I'm a bit of a galaboggin from out in the whoop-whoop of the Deep South, you know? Bit of a buffhead, if you will. So the last two victims, Clark and Walters, would actually be the first to be discovered. Some outdoorsmen who were just out for a nice competitive hike stumbled across the remains about six months later in September of 1992, screamed real loud, probably, and informed the police of what they had just found. Another year later, in October of 93, they discovered Everest and Gibson, and a month after that, they discovered the remaining three victims, Simon, Khabshid, and Neugerbauer. While this is going on over in the Land of Oz, down in the Land of Oz, excuse me, Onions is back home in England, but he's not quite done processing his abuse. He'd been keeping up with all the Australian news to see if anything came up about what happened to him, and the reports of all the missing backpackers prompted him to make a few phone calls. They'd initially ignored his report four years earlier, but after his call in November 1993, right after they discovered Simone, Habshid, and Neugerbauer, they shifted into high gear to find the details. Fortunately, first time I've got to say that today, there is hope. A dedicated constable kept notes on the report in her notebook so the information was not just, you know, lost in a pile somewhere. So that finally brings us to the question on everybody's mind, who the fuck is Bill? Bill Dye the murder guy is actually a man named Ivan Milat, and he had a really interesting childhood. He was born December 27th, 1944, two days after Christmas, as the fifth oldest out of 14 total children. That's way too many kids for two people. You are so outnumbered. His father, Stephen, had served in the Navy in World War I, but by the time Ivan was four, he'd taken a job as a gardener, which meant that the entire family had to work up until about 2 a.m. just to make ends meet, and it was just still barely enough. They lived on the outskirts of Sydney near a working district, and Margaret, his mother, said she doesn't really remember having any trouble with Ivan as a child, or any of the other kids for that matter. They seemed to have had a pretty good handle on it. They lived in a three-bedroom house, the kids slept in triple-tiered bunk beds, didn't know that was a thing, and guns being in the house was just kind of the way of the house, so everybody learned how to shoot. And honestly, Ivan seems to have done pretty well up until high school age. He was an altar boy, excelled in math and art, so he's a pretty smart kid too. You gotta be intelligent to be good at those things. But in high school, he began regularly skipping class, which lands him at a boy's home for a little while. Eh, those aren't fun. We've talked about those a few times. And I think that's about where we can say his downward spiral begins for him. By 17, he'd been arrested for breaking and entering and spent six months in a juvenile detention center in 1962. The rest of the 60s would land him in jail another four times. And in 1969, something traumatic happens. This is what I would probably point to if I had to pick a spot where his switch flipped on and off. His sister is killed in a car accident pretty close to the family home, and Ivan took it pretty rough. So rough that by 1971, he was charged with raping one of the women hitchhikers he'd picked up near Liverpool, almost exactly where he'd picked up the previous seven people we've talked about. The pressure's on, though. He's also got a couple robbery charges from a bank heist thrown in with that rape charge, too, so he dips out and flees to New Zealand for a couple years to lay low. However, the moment he returns to the mainland, he is arrested. 
but not convicted of anything somehow. He'd gotten out from under the robbery charges and somehow also weaseled his way out of the rape charge too, because one of the victims changed her story, even though there was evidence that he'd tied them up and threatened them with a knife. Oh, I guess there were two women that day, which, yeah, that seems to fit the mold for what we've already talked about. In 1975, he began working as a long-haul truck driver and was known to those around him as a respectable workaholic, blending in really well, it seems. Over the next five years, he meets his future wife, Karen, whom he would marry in the 80s, which happens right before his dad dies of bowel cancer and his brother, David, suffers permanent brain damage in yet another tragic family car accident. A few more things I could point to, I suppose. The human psyche is a complex machine, after all. Then in 1987, Karen completely disappears. She and her mother packed up the entire house one day while Ivan was at work, and she wouldn't return until seven years later when she gave evidence against him because she was in witness protection. What the hell did you do to Karen, man? Yeah, man, that's your wife. What are you doing? We like Karens on this show. At least listener Karen's pretty cool. She has interesting art. Then in 1989, Ivan just can't take the crushing reality of being alone after a loved one leaves you, and he quits his job to go do all the stuff in the beginning of the episode pretty much full-time, and that's who the fuck Bill is. Now that we know who we're looking for, and a lot a bit about him, seems like he's probably going to be the number one suspect once they find that letter from Onions, right? Uh, yes? You are indeed correct. The task force of over 20 detectives had come across the letter in April of 1994 and immediately began surveilling his house. They found out he'd very recently sold his four-wheel drive truck and that he'd not been working on any of the days the attacks had occurred. Mr. Onions was shipped in so he could positively identify Mr. Malat as the man who almost sautéed him four years prior and in May of 1994. Ivan Malat is arrested at his house. Take that! How the tables have turned, yeah? In the land down under, the onion chops you, mate. GFY, you dickhead. So the police really want to know what this fuckwit's got going on inside his house, and I think they're gonna like what they find. Just heaps and heaps of 22 bullets and rifles and pistols and knives and ropes. Just big fucking pile of murdery shit lying all over this wanker's house. Aussie listeners, at Second Self Podcast on Instagram if you want to critique my accent and slang. Cheers, mate. Honestly, I would love to hear from you, and that goes for everybody. So, Ivan's finally arrested in 1994, but his trial wouldn't take place until 96. There's lots of other pre-trial stuff going on, such as uh, a committal hearing, which had over 200 witnesses. That's going to take some time to sort through, probably. Also, Ivan's brothers Richard and Walter were tried for some other things at the same time for weapons and robbery charges, so maybe the family wasn't as stable as I thought. At his own trial, Ivan has some things to say, and none of them are true. He's a liar. He says when asked why he believed he would be found innocent, this is what he said, quote, My basic defense in my trial is that it wasn't me. I don't know who did it. It was up to them to prove my guilt, not for me to prove my innocence. Really, bro? It wasn't me? The shaggy defense? Also, what the fuck are you talking about? It's up to them to prove your guilt, but not for you to prove your innocence. Dude, that's like exactly what a fucking trial is. The prosecution has to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're guilty, but your defense also has to try to prove your innocence on some level. Whether that's working the evidence to get a lesser sentence or not guilty at all or acquitted, you know, i.e. innocent. 
you know, it kind of depends on the circumstances, but yeah, the, that quote means absolutely nothing. It's just rancid, gross word salad. Giving a loose definition of trial is not a great defense of yourself, sir. Then if that wasn't dumb enough, the defense also tried to say that there wasn't any, quote, non-circumstantial evidence that it was definitely Ivan, and then they tried to blame his brother Richard for it. It wasn't me, it was my brother, mate. The little wanker's always getting into shit. Struth! He tried to blame his brother? This guy sucks. Ivan is definitely up there for me on my murderers who suck as a person list. Like, if you took away the murders from his life, he would still suck. Like, he wouldn't be a fun person to hang around, I don't think. Like, he's just... He would take all the energy out of the room and just make everybody tired. And the jury doesn't think he'd be a fun person to be around either. In fact, they don't want him around anybody. So on July 27, 1996, he is found super guilty of murdering the seven people who were introduced in the beginning. Anya, Gabor, Simone, Richard, Deborah, Joanne, and Caroline. And sentenced to a life sentence for each one. Also... Tack on another six years apiece for the attempted murder, false imprisonment, and robbery of Mr. Onions. See, that's the thing about onions. The smell just sticks to you. And now he's got an extra 18 years on top of seven life sentences. In Australia, a life sentence is 10 to 25 years, depending on the severity. So he's looking at almost 200 years of imprisonment. If he lived to be 100 years old, he'd still have to die and reincarnate twice before he's finished serving his sentence. And I say good riddance, but we're not done here yet. On his first day at Maitland Jail, I think is how you say that, it's spelled G-A-O-L, Jail, he was beaten savagely by another inmate, awesome. Nice. The next year, he tried to escape with former Sydney counselor George Savas, I don't know who that is, but he was a convicted drug dealer at this time of his life. Well, that escape didn't go very well, and Savas hanged himself in his cell the next day. This story just keeps going. That same year in 1997, then in 2004, again in 2005, and in 2006, he tries to file appeals based on inadequate representation or some petty bullshit like that, but they are all denied pretty quickly. They're not taking any of it from him. In 2009, he steps it up a notch, tries to cut off his little finger to force an appeal, but that didn't work because... I guess he wasn't successful, and surgery was not possible, so he was sent just right back to jail. Then in 2011, he goes on a nine-day hunger strike and loses 25 kilograms because he wanted a PlayStation. No! No God of War for you, sir. Murderers don't get to play video games. Also, 25 kilograms is around 55 freedom units, or you know, pounds, I guess, as they're more commonly known. And finally, finally, just a couple of years ago, in 2019, Ivan dies of stomach and esophageal cancer at the age of 74. That's a brutal way to go out. And he never once admitted to any of the murders he was found guilty of. But here's another interesting thing before we go. By the time Ivan killed the seven victims from the beginning, he was already 45 years old. That's super late in life to start killing, especially if he's killing them in the way that we described today. Which makes me, and all the other actual investigators with resources whose job it is to do stuff like that, think that, eh, they probably weren't his first victims. It's possible he could have had help, but I think with the kind of work he did, working on the road, long-haul truck driver, always traveling from place to place, and with everything else we know now, I can still see him working alone. So before we go, here's a list of other potential people Ivan, or Bill Dye the murder guy, could have been involved with. 
Karen Rowland, Peter Letcher, Diane Panaccio, Leanne Goodall, Robin Hickey, Amanda Robinson, Amanda Zolis, Annette Briffa, Susan Eisenhood, Anita Cunningham, Robin Hoyneville Bartram, Gabriel Junkie, Michelle Riley, Lydia Knotts, Narelle Mary Cox, Barbara Carroll Brown, Stephen Lapthorne, Michelle Pope, Alan Martin Fox, Anek Adrianson, Tony Marie Cavanaugh, Kay Doherty, Kim Cherie Tier, Elaine Johnson, Deborah Balkin, Jillian Jameson, Joanne Lacey, Leslie David Toshak, Carmen Verheiden, Melanie Merrill Sutton, and Chad Everett Sutton are all thought to have encountered Ivan at some point. All of the above 31 additional victims. Thank you for sticking through to the end of that. They went missing starting in 1971, same year his sister died, and were between the ages of 14 and 22, except for Diane, who was 29. If you take everything we know about Ivan at this point, I don't think it's out of the scope of possibilities that he was responsible for all of those other victims as well, which would put him at almost 40. I'm not the guy to break anything newsworthy, but at least I can give their real names so they aren't just a collection of Jane and John Doe's. There's the familiar whoosh! So that is the horribly, horribly violent story of Ivan Milat, a truly depraved individual. I haven't read about a guy this gross in quite a while. This was fascinating and kind of hard to get through sometimes. You know, I see a lot of similarities with another person we've talked about on this show just a couple of months ago. Did anyone else catch on to this? Remember Bad Larry Eiler? He operated in much the same way, traveling from state to state, picking up hitchhikers and dudes from gay bars and would just dump them in remote rural areas after he was done with them. Except for that one guy that got away. Also, yeah, one guy got away, which helped get him convicted too, I think. So yeah, a lot of similarities there. It's been a while since then, but I do want to say he also had a very similar upbringing too, as most serial killers do. Or, at the very least, they tend to share commonalities, such as like being poor growing up or, you know, impoverished to a certain degree, alcoholic parents, animal abuse or cruelty, some bedwetting here and there, setting fires, just heaps and heaps of serial killers can have a parallel drawn to another one, mate. It's fucking crazy. I can't help the accent, but that's okay, because that's going to be all from me today. Although, I for sure want to make it down to Australia one day so I can hang out at CONFEST. That seriously sounds like it would be so much fun. Just walk around stoned all day, eating heaps and heaps of delicious food, surrounded by bright colors, and oh my god, I need a vacation. So if you like that story, or just the way I tell stories, do me a solid and drop a review on iTunes for me, huh? In fact, you should do that for all your favorite shows, including all the other shows on the Podmoth Network that you should also be listening to. What are you doing after this? You should go do that. Like, Bree and Sue's from Crime and Spirits just got done with a whole summer full of serial killers, including BTK, so definitely go check them out if you get some time. You can also talk to me if you want to via the show's Instagram and email address. Alex, where are they? Instagram at Second Self Podcast, and the show email is mysecondselfandI at gmail.com. Send us something. A suggestion for something you'd like to hear me talk my way through, a kind word, whatever you want. So if you'd like to do that, there you go. I'm off to go find the next episode, and until then, have a good week, everybody. Make smart choices and stay kind. Bye!